0: I'm Aisha Taylor Kamara, and in this three part series, I'll be exploring the black pioneers in British radio broadcasting from the early 20th century. This is Yunnan, Boston introducing West Indians in Britain. Right through to the beginnings of the 21st. It tells the story of the often neglected voices of black Britain who served their communities. The, BBC, on the pirate radio stations like DBC and LWR which inspired the creation of black-owned licensed radio stations like WNK and choice FM. Choice, choice, choice FM and not just those who served the communities whose culture, tastes and interests were not being catered for by the mainstream but those who also served the wider British public We often find that these voices are left out of the usual history books. When they are, we have to question why and look at who's telling the story. And not just who's telling the story, but who's dictating it too. Who's dictating what should be said and how these stories should be told? Told, 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 told. told. It is also not just the fact that these black broadcasters and voices on the radio are left out of the history books. It's also that their works weren't even recorded. Even when they were, we are told that because the audience they were talking to, or the amount of listeners to the show, was so small, that exploring this further is not worth it. The programmes are somewhat deemed insignificant. Or when we get told that these programmes were recorded, they were lost. So they say. Say, 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 say. So throughout this series, I've spoken to a number of people, including researchers, academics, and also some of those black pioneers who've helped make British radio broadcasting what it is today. In this episode, I speak to Lloyd Bradley, a journalist, writer, and black music expert about the influence of the Southern Syncopated Orchestra. Stephen Bourne, a cultural historian specialising in the black presence in Britain, about black women vocalists on BBC Radio. And Chena Engwe, an oboist and PhD researcher exploring the musical histories of Black Caribbean and African classical musicians and composers in Britain. Welcome to In Safe Hands, the voices of Black Britain. The story you're about to hear today starts way before June 1948. Black people were making their mark in Britain, claiming their stake. Calypso had been thriving. And jazz too. This story even begins before the birth of British radio in 1922. In 1919, the first black band in Britain made their mark. The band put together by William Marion Cook. The 27-piece band gave jazz a new look. They went by the name of the Southern Syncopated Orchestra. Originally made up of African-Americans, but when they started to leave Britain, the West Indians took over.
1: The Southern Syncopated Orchestra turned up and essentially brought jazz to the UK. You know, 1919, and jazz hadn't been going that long in America. And there might have been some records made over here, but they were the first black band to tour here. There was a, a white jazz band toured around the same time, just a little bit after the Southern Syncopated Orchestra. Um, But uh, the the great thing about that was it was the beginnings of a black British music at that point because the uh, Southern syncopated orchestra stayed for so long that their members were were going home, you know, just had enough and went back to America. And they were being replaced by black players from the Commonwealth, which was Nigeria, Anglophone West Africa, or um, the Caribbean, you know. And uh, the great thing was, was they were bringing their own ideas with them as well. Yes, they were playing the jazz that the crowds expected. This is the mid-1920s. But they were bringing little bits of their own styles in there. So at that point... So black British music started evolving.
0: The Southern Syncopated Orchestra made a big impression in Edwardian London, UK, with Edward VIII inviting them to play at Buckingham Palace and even the first anniversary of Armistice Day. The band took London, then Britain by storm. They popularised black music in Britain and London's club scene was then transformed. Tragedy hit the band who ended up being caught in a wreckage their success was rudely interrupted, which has meant their story has remained hidden for decades. On a voyage for a tour from Scotland to Ireland 99 years ago this month, the ship they were sailing on the SS Rowan was struck. Tragically, members of the band drowned along with their instruments and sound. Following the tragedy, the band did try to recover. But in 1921, they disbanded, and music recordings of the group are yet to be discovered. Frank Bates, Pete Robinson, Sidney Bechet, Abby Mitchell, Cyril Blake, Evelyn Dove are just a handful of names you should know. And black people weren't just making the music, they were making the instruments too. Ones that would be extremely influential for how people danced and moved. Trinidadian Lodrick-Hatton built some of the first electric guitars seen in London. Him along with Cyril Blake, one of the names I just mentioned, playing at Jigs Club in Soho, they made a lasting impression.
1: Hello Rhythm Club, this is Harry Perry speaking and presenting Cyril Blake and his band from Jigs Club London,
0: playing Cyril's Blues. The club was situated between Wardour and Dean Street. Together, they helped the club become the hottest place to be. These are just some of the pioneers and there are so much more, like Rudolf Dunbar and Evelyn Dove who helped kick down the doors. Rudolph, the first black man to conduct the Berlin and London Philharmonic Orchestra, but when put forward to the BBC to conduct theirs, they said he wasn't good enough. And then there's Dove, one of the first black women on the radio singing. Following her involvement in the Southern Syncopated Orchestra, her story continues in 1925, just three years after BBC Radio officially went live.
2: I was particularly interested in her BBC Radio career because I discovered through research that she was probably one of the first black singers on BBC radio as early as 1925. Well, the BBC had only really just started in 1922, so three years in, Evelyn is... And her picture was in the Radio Times that year, 1925. So she's gaining some sort of prominence. Then she vanishes from the BBC at the end of the 1920s because she went to Europe and was very popular as a cabaret singer and a variety singer particularly Italy, she's very popular in Italy. But when war clouds began to loom on the horizon in the late thirties, when the Nazis began to move across Europe and occupy Europe, Evelyn had to retreat back to England, which is what she did in 1938, 1939. But she picked up her BBC radio career in 1939 thereabouts. And as a singer, as a vocalist, was prominent on BBC Radio for at least 10 years.
0: We was introduced to probably the first black singer on radio. She had the voice, she had the flow, the voice of a beautiful bird, one that's been forgotten, something that happens far too often. So let's show her some love. Let me introduce Ms Evelyn Dove. you hear are her melodies mellow indeed influenced by the music that encouraged her community not just community but for us and generations to see just how powerful these melodies can be
2: extraordinary extraordinary career really and but to be so forgotten at the end was very very sad at the end of her life after having made such an impression and when I asked older people like my dad does the name Evelyn Dove mean anything to you he knew straight away she she used to sing on the radio I wouldn't say she was as famous as Vera Lynn I mean it's, it's a pointless sort of exercise but she was as prolific on BBC radio during the war years especially as someone like Vera Lynn
0: Sing, 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 until we are free, freedom to be us, equality.
2: Her repertoire by the 1930s would have included, she always included spirituals because she had started out hoping to be a concert singer singing spirituals and audiences loved that. So she would sing spirituals like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and alongside sort of popular songs of the day, cabaret songs, uh, love songs, torch songs. They were called torch songs in those days. Sort of women singers would sing songs about broken love affairs and men had, that treated them. Not the blues. The blues was something else. Evelyn didn't sing the blues, but Evelyn would sing torch songs and um, popular songs of the day, I Can't Give You Anything But Love and all those kind of songs that were popular with the British public and indeed in in Europe in the 1930s. She even learnt to sing in Italian and Spanish, different languages. So she was very versatile.
0: Evelyn Dove, Elizabeth Welch, Ida Shepley and Adelaide Hall, black women during the war, entertaining us all.
2: Alongside Evelyn, you also had Ida Shepley. And Ida Shepley was also British-born, mixed-race like Evelyn, but she was born up north, so she had a kind of northern accent. When I looked at Ida Shepley's files at the BBC, she always publicised herself as being Trinidadian, because I suppose somewhere along the line, someone had said to Ida, don't say you're British because that won't be as acceptable as being from the Caribbean so she lied and said she was Trinidadian <laughs> and right into the 1950s but Ida's also on the radio all through the war and sadly unlike Evelyn and Elizabeth and Adelaide Ida didn't make any recordings So, it's, but there is a radio programme from 1938 with Ida singing in it that has survived called Mississippi Nights and she had a beautiful voice really beautiful voice so there were Others, Evelyn wasn't alone, but those four are the the main kind of women, black women, vocalists on BBC Radio.
0: Black men and women came from all over, Trinidad, Jamaica, Sierra Leone and Nigeria, to do their bit in the air, on land and at sea, making their mark in what they were told was the mother country. Sacrifices were made, and there was so much bravery. But their stories and contributions often left out of British history.
2: After having done this work for decades, I've come to the conclusion that those people back then, when they were writing the histories of the BBC and history books and histories of musical theatre, When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s and taking an interest in this subject, it it was quite apparent that they were missed. I knew who they were. I knew who Edric Connor was, who Evelyn Dove was, who Elizabeth was, and they were always missing from these books. There is this book called, What Did You Do in the War, Auntie? So it's a book about the BBC in wartime and not one black person is mentioned in it. And yet if you look at my book, Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, 39 to 45, I've done a whole chapter which I could expand into a book if I wanted to, about the black presence on BBC Radio in the Second World War. And when you just read that chapter, it gives you a snapshot of how important black artists, not just singers, but actors. I mean, Elizabeth Welch made her acting debut on BBC Radio in 1944 in a George Bernard Shaw play. I mean, this is extraordinary. Robert Adams from Guyana played the lead that same year. In Eugene O'Neill's The Emperor Jones, it's extraordinary.
0: These melodies they sung helped unite one another, and there's so many out there left to discover. He wanted to spice up classical music, adding some flavour. You've probably already heard of him. He goes by the name of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Another Sierra Leonean helped set the path. Born before evening, he also put in the graft. Inspired by black people all over the world, one of his melodies is titled They Would Not Lend Me a Child.
3: Taken from a Southern African lullaby, it says, although I did actually do a bit of research into the song. And it's quite interesting that Coleridge Taylor obviously was English. His dad was from Sierra Leone, but he was definitely an Englishman. And he learnt the song from a Swiss missionary and I always thought it was direct from a missionary, but actually it was from a book. So it's interesting that this theme is an African tune written down in Western notation in a book, which Samuel Coleridge Taylor then bought, and then he did his own arrangement of that. So it's like two steps removed and no direct link to the culture the tune's actually from. So that's quite interesting in how that traveled. And I'd actually really like to try and hear an original version of that song to to see what they actually sound like. Because there there is somehow this weird assumption that because Coleridge Taylor had African heritage, that he would have that some kind of natural link with all of these (laughs) African tunes that he used, which obviously is not going to be the case. But yeah, that assumption does get made that these must be really authentic because it's him. But it's still a very nice, very, very nice piece of music.
0: The flavour he gave was as hot as a Scotch bonnet, and to surprise, the white people then were on it. on it. But why has his story and music got lost? He isn't the only one either. It's not just the black male classical musicians,
3: but the black women too. Looking through what I have managed to get hold of so far, Amanda Aldridge is the only person of African heritage who I've discovered working in this particular sector who was not a singer. And that's the thing. So, you'll have women who were very visible who were singers. And it seems like that was a much more accepted thing to do. But Amanda Aldridge was linked to the Royal College of Music because she taught there as well as a singer. And she was also known as a composer. Winifred Atwell was really well known as a ragtime pianist. From the late 50s onwards, from the 50s onwards, but she actually was classically trained. Some of her biographies talk about her studying at the Royal Academy of Music, but she's not listed in any of their student records. So it actually is more likely that we know who she learned with. And her teacher actually was a teacher at the Royal Academy of Music. So it looks like that's been conflated somewhere. But the fact that she learned with somebody who was who was a teacher there, that she studied there, but she wasn't officially registered as a student. She might have gone in to have some lessons, but she quite often went to his house for that, because there's lots of records of her going to his house for her piano lessons. But she was never officially a student at Royal Academy of Music. So looking at official students or people who went down that conservatoire route, there are hardly any, any, any.
0: There's so much more of this story, so much more to know. As you can see, black music doesn't start from the Windrush in Tilbury. It doesn't start in June 1948, nor does it start with John Blank and Henry Seventh VII and Eighth, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Winifred Atwell, Amanda Aldridge and just some of the names. But names like Beethoven, Mozart are etched in our brain. The names of black composers, on the other hand, are not in plain sight and sound but are hidden. Uchenna's project Plainsight Sound is on a mission to rediscover, document and highlight the African descent contribution.
3: The timeline was the first part, the first big bit of work I did for the website and it was a way of me visualising all of this work that I was writing, all of these stories and trying to see how they fit together to form this more realistic narrative of black musicians in Britain because there is always still this idea that Windrush was the first time any black person set foot in Britain <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I knew that I needed to make it very very easy for everybody to really understand the full breadth of this story and to understand also that the first point in my timeline is not actually the beginning of the story that's just the first documented part of the story so obviously it starts with John Blank who we all know was a trumpeter in the Tudor Courts of Henry's seventh and eighth. And it then as as I'm finding more and more people who worked as classical musicians, or although it wasn't called classical in that in those in that period, um, but who worked in what would now be thought of as art music, um, and it'd be performers, instrumentalists, and singers uh, who I'm focusing on at the moment.
0: Some of these black musicians came from the colonies; a good few from West Africa,
3: training as music students in the conservatoire there was this history of West African students coming to the UK to study throughout the 20th century, in late 19th, early 20th century. And some of them had been music students. I knew that from... I studied at what was then Trinity College of Music and knew that there had been um, people like King Sonny Ade and Fela Kuti who had studied at music conservatories. So they'd obviously studied classical music but weren't really spoken about in terms of classical classical performance. So I knew there were all these people out there who must have existed, must have been in these places, but weren't really being acknowledged. Non-e-s- 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 non-e-s-
0: non-e-s- non-e-s- these conservatoires seemed like they were the place to be training musicians from all over the world, not just this country. You see, these black people loving classical had to be of some sort of higher status. To get to the academy, these people had to be be able to afford the instruments, the wind, The strings, the brass, they were very much situated in the middle class.
3: Looking at the background of a lot of the musicians during that period, if we're thinking about the early 20th century, they would have trained in the church and in things like Salvation Army and military bands, and they would have been themselves middle class at the very least. So there's always this status thing that was attached to it, especially people who coming from... From the colonies. So status is definitely a very big part of it. So they'd already have that training. Then when they're in the UK, they would be they're very heavily involved in early British jazz, masquerading as African American, because that's how you get the gigs, right? (laughs) So kind of working in all of these, in all of these worlds, still being very creative and being able to actually incorporate their own cultural influence into this whole scene as well something that they managed to be able to do but we have to remember that none of them were working class musicians
0: their stories got lost and their music never played it's not just about talking about them either we can't go any longer putting their work and stories to one side we can't go any longer sitting down quietly or standing by we need to do the work to bring these phenomenal people and cultural history alive
3: And it seems to be a thing where all of these black figures are very popular when they're alive. And as soon as they die, they're just erased and forgotten completely. And it's as if they never existed. And then every few years, we talk about how sad it is that we have forgotten who they are, but we never talk about their actual work. We never play their actual work, so we don't hear them as musicians. We just talk about their stories. And not being able to hear their work means that they don't really become concrete in our memories.
0: who are the ones telling the story? and not just telling it, but dictating it too. Who were the gatekeepers preventing us from getting through?
3: The narrative that we get seems to focus on Samuel Coleridge-Taylor as being this anomaly. And he was the only person of African heritage who ever did anything really successfully within British classical music, and then everyone else was in America. And I knew, as i said already, as I keep saying to everybody, (laughs) that that's definitely not the case. So I wanted to find these other stories and bring them out into the light.
0: Why do they often get excluded from history, even though they made fantastic programmes across the BBC? So all of this history often gets missed, even though these black people on radio did so much for the country before, during and after the Blitz. This brings us to a close, and it's the end of chapter one. But stay tuned for chapter two, because the story's only just begun. In the next episode, you'll hear about Una Marson, and her influential radio program, Calling the West Indies. It gave Caribbeans a voice, as well as a pioneering magazine program created by Alex Pascal and his wife, Joyce. There is such a rich black broadcasting history in the UK and it deserves recognition and celebration. And as we critically discuss the construction of certain narratives around black people in Britain, the institutions who control the mainstream narrative and continue to withhold should take responsibility and accountability for these missing parts of history. It's not about being afraid to look back because of what we might find. We need to do as much as we can to keep Black people's work in Britain and their stories alive. I also want to give a voice to new Black voices coming through, those who have a beautiful story that they want to tell too.
4: The Power of the Minority Flow by Tiffany. They're privileged. As the winds rush, the legacy of my ancestors play on. They can be found in dumps of one's empire, scraping the floor of one's firm and working until its end to put food on the table. But it's through this life we know to be a white man's terror. Our footprints get lost in the countless grains of sand that once brought to the man our lyrics, of freedom. Music fills the soul, finds its way past one's fingertips and into their throats. It translates into sounds of liberation. The genre falls effortlessly out of our tongues and in release, the minority flow. A sound of supposed rebellion that now simply serves as a suburban summer enjoyment. It's grim. It's crime. It's a crime, but in my mind, to be a minority is the reality the man fails to see as a failure of their own deed. Labelling your battle scars as a rebellion to their standard, and so we find ourselves aggressive, unmatched to the gloss that the media shows as the privileged. My gifts flourish. It's in this greatness that I can tell you that my flow is not to be misinterpreted for the violence that I live as that to me is my flow.
0: the power of the minority flow. In Safe Hands, The Voices of Black Britain has been written and produced by Aisha Taylor-Kamara with special sound curation and editing by DJ Knickknack. It sits alongside an online exhibition where you can hear more from the contributors in the series and explore some images and videos from the archive. Please visit www. The voices of Black Britain com